0: Thank you so much for joining us on Discover Economics, How Did I Get Here? So just who or what is an economist? There's an economic lens for every topic that you can possibly think of. The economists in our podcast are motivated by a desire to change the world and their belief that better data and better understanding are key to achieving this change. I'm very excited and enthusiastic about learning more about what economics can offer us as a society, and what are the options when it comes to careers for young people. It's been an absolute delight to do this series and to learn more, to indulge my nosiness and to get to ask so many questions, the questions I'm hoping you as listeners will also have wanted to ask. So thank you so much for listening. So today we are joined by Mary Spowage. Mary is the director of the Fraser of Allender Institute, a leading economy research institute based in the Department of Economics at the University of Strathclyde. Previously, Mary was the deputy chief executive of the Scottish Fiscal Commission and the head of national accounts at the Scottish Government. Currently, Mary is leading on various projects to improve regional economic statistics, looking at inter-regional trade business engagement and encouraging graduates into careers in analysis through the Economic Futures Programme, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, She's also developing the Fraser's Capacity Building CPD Programme in the use of national and local economic data and statistics. So, welcome Mari. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. It's lovely to have you. We're looking forward to learning exactly how you got to where you are today. So let me dive in with the most intrusive question first. Where did you go to school? Where did you grow up? And what were you like at school?
1: Well, I grew up um, in a wee village in um in central Scotland. Um, called Main Street, um, which is at the foot of the Oakle Hills. So it's a, about about a few miles outside Stirling. So many many of your listeners may be familiar with that part of the country. If you're not, it's right in the heart of Scotland, really. And very beautiful. It is beautiful. Yes, it is. Um, it's a lovely part of the world. Um, and I still live there now, actually, bringing up my own kids there. <laughs> but um, I went to school um, at Alva Academy the um, local comprehensive, um, just in the next village along the road. And what was I like at school? Um, I suppose I was fairly conscientious. I would say with my studies, I always liked doing well at school, and always. Did not like getting into trouble at school, so I guess I was quite like a conscientious student and it was, was quite serious about you know getting the results I wanted and, and then heading off to university. To be honest, I was quite focused on that, I would say.
0: I think I just had a weird flashback to my own time at school where I was always worried about getting into trouble, not because of my teachers, mostly because of having to tell my parents when <laughs> I
1: Yes, exactly. You, you, do, you didn't want the disappointed chat. <laughs> disappointed
0: yes, yes.
1: So I definitely avoided, avoided the, the trouble, at least until I got into my late teens.
0: <laughs> well done. Well, I'm glad that you did it eventually. You got, we've all got to, to do it a little bit. Yeah. And and what were your favourite subjects at school? Did you do economics at school in any kind of
1: shape or form? I didn't at all, no. Um. And, and when I was at school, I don't think I really knew what economics was really, and I think that's true of a lot of folks. Um, I suppose, mm. it, it, you know, obviously it, it Comprehensive's, it, it doesn't tend to be taught as a separate subject generally, certainly not in Scotland anyway. And, you know, so I was really into maths. So I did maths all the way through and I did six-year studies maths, which is what advanced hires used to be called um, when I was at school. Got my first taste of statistics, actually, um, which is um, my, my, my true love, really. You know, I am really an economic statistician. That was when I first got um, into a bit of statistics. But it wasn't really till I went to university that I um, really discovered the power of statistics and how insightful it could be.
0: And what was that like? So was there a moment when you were at university where you, is there an example you can give us? When was it you really did see what statistics can do?
1: Yeah, I suppose. Well, um, I went off to St Andrews uh, to, to do a maths degree. I just took maths um, on its own. Um, and then when you had to pick all your subjects, there was a bunch of subjects you know I could do all the the mass ones and I took all of those and then there was, a, there was other stuff you had to choose and statistics was kind of like mass so I thought well I'll give that a whirl and see what it was like um and I think it was, there's a real specialism in St Andrews at that time for using applied statistics to do things like monitor wildlife populations and, and and other things like that. There's a big specialism there in that sort of area of research and just seeing how kind of useful it could be in a really practical way um you know you could use data and build models that would actually like give insight into real policy problems um and that was when I became really interested kind of pivoted away from like pure mass and, and all of this sort of thing into the much more applied topics that, you know, could actually yeah, give these insights.
0: You were seduced into economics by um, <laughs> monitoring wildlife, is what you're <laughs> telling me.
1: Pretty much, yeah. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, all, all of my um, undergrad and postgrad was focused on using statistics for ecological and environmental applications. And it wasn't actually till my, my working career that I, I got more into the economic
0: space later on in my career. That's really interesting because the environmental side of economics has come up a lot um, in, in the interviews that we've done because it is one of those... Areas that if you know how economics is applied to um, the environment, then you know. But I think that it's kind of maybe three or four down the list from the what people think economics is, like the interest rate, etc. But but it's right up there with being popular in the kind of economic space and and a gateway drug, if you like. I think for a lot of people because it's a bit different, but it's big enough. Like it's it's a huge area of economics unlike some of the more niche smaller areas
1: yeah yeah absolutely and you know in terms of the the sort of work um, I did at, at university both through my dissertation and in my master's and also work I did you know as a research assistant during the summer and stuff like that a lot of it is in areas that you know my economic colleagues would call econometrics but you know we, we just called it statistics <laughs> but it's all the same kind of stuff and it's all the same techniques it's all the same coding skills that you could require and understanding the underlying theory about why things might be linked to each other. And, and, and you know, it's all, all the same sort of stuff, really, which does make me laugh. And, you know, it's all, all econometrics, apparently, but
0: like, it's really statistics. It's a fancy <laughs> name. <I know. laughs> but it's funny when we talk about accessibility, isn't it? Like, in and kind of getting more people into it. Like you, like when I went to school, there was definitely economics wasn't a subject, but very little stats as well. And so having a language that that people understand like even if you don't do stats at school you understand what statistics are so you know having that kind of simplified is the wrong word but more natural language let's say is part of accessibility as well isn't it absolutely I guess that's
1: the power of using you know the more I guess maybe than some economists or some people who work in economics I always come at it from the kind of data point of view what does the data tell us? How are we measuring this? Just because of the way I've, I've come into economics. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about it like that can make it more accessible to people. Um, if you can give examples or or, or show how that, you know, the data can give you insights. I think that really helps
0: um, rather than maybe in the abstract or the theoretic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you went from doing so much um, on the kind of ecological and environmental side, Straight into fiscal policy, like because it's a awesome. lot of fiscal policy stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, <there's, laughs> how does that happen? <laughs> well, it happened through uh, after my master's, I, I became a fast stream statistician in the government statistical service. So I went into the government statistical service through the Scottish government and I actually started working in transport statistics. So they kind of just assign you, you know, they don't necessarily look at your research interests at university. So when I went to to transport statistics and I spent a couple of years there and then went off to manage um, one of the main household surveys in Scotland, the Scottish Household Survey. And then I had a few years um, working on the National Performance Framework, which was the the closest I got to um, economics at that point in time because the whole point of the National Performance Framework in Scotland was to try and measure things a bit differently. It was after you know this sent to see report into you know how we could measure the success of a country maybe in different ways and wider ways. and it's sometimes called this you know the kind of beyond or alternative to GDP debate about how we capture success. So that was my really first engagement in thinking about how we measure success in the country, which can be quite dominated by economic indicators, but are there other indicators we can use to try and capture that success? And during my time doing that post, I had I also had three children, so <laughs> was off for a wee bit. That's going to take up some time. Yes. But when I was pregnant with my third um, child, actually, I saw this opportunity to become head of national accounts in the Scottish government. And uh, yeah, I got interviewed for that and I, I got offered the, the role. I obviously went on that leave and then came back and took it up. But I had never worked in detail in economic statistics before. But as soon as I started and delving into national accounts and public sector finances and how you measure the economy, I knew I'd found my... Calling, I would say. What was it? a national accounts, it's just so elegant, you know, the accounting identities, the way it all hangs together, the way it's measured, the way it brings all of these disparate data sources together to say something meaningful about the economy and the kind of the, the way the framework works together, mm. and the way that you can use it for a part of the UK like Scotland, where you maybe don't have all of the data sets you need, but that kind of framework allows you to derive those ones you don't necessarily observe. I found as well. Having a real knowledge of how the economy is measured gives you a much better ability to talk about it um, in a sensible manner. So um, obviously some some economists you meet are, are a bit more theoretical and less comfortable with data, but I'm I'm much more on the kind of well, how is that measured? How do we capture it? And particularly when you're dealing with data about parts of the UK, you know, regions or nations of the UK, you need to understand how it's been derived to really talk about it sensibly, because quite often it can use UK patterns or UK growth rates, or you know, so you really need to understand how the statistics have been derived in order to Draw suitable inferences from it.
0: I That's really interesting. I um I find myself because my area is in digital skills, and it's that thing you just said about where did the data come from. is something I bring up all the time. It's like don't just look at the numbers. Like, do you know how much you can trust these numbers? Where did they come from? How old are they? And I know in my area, like, say, if we were looking at something like Google Analytics throwing in the the idea that you know how you're looking at demographic data how many different people within a household use that same device who are all different demographics within that household and how do you tell the difference and I think that again it's about exactly what you said being able to break down that kind of concept to something that people understand like you know where did those numbers come from as soon as I have to admit the the Scottish in me jumped out right now when you said often it's derived from uk patterns and i'm like what why is there not data for scotland only and i think the same for wales and for england and for you know and regions it's so important to have that good clean data
1: you know this is goes goes to the heart of stuff i love talking about which is about there's been huge strides forward in measurement of the scottish economy over the last 10 to 15 years at the same time business data in great britain northern ireland separate for historical reasons and so on but data is collected on from a business register, which is made up of GB um, level reporting units for business, which means if you're trying to allocate business activity to parts of that, whether it's Scotland or Wales or London or whatever it is, then you need to make some assumptions and you need to model that using employment shares. Now that's not terrible, but it's not it's not perfect either. And you know, but unless we decide to invest heavily and collect data in quite a different way potentially using more administrative sources, but generally administrative sources are tax sources which are collected at the highest level possible, obviously. you know, so, so there are all these limitations with the source of data we're using to measure the economy. If you're thinking about Scotland or Wales or another part of the UK, and that's some of the challenges we're dealing with when we're thinking about, well, how do we measure how much trade goes between scotland and the rest of the uk or or whatever it is you know these are the challenges because of how the data is collected and you need to understand how the data is collected and therefore how the regional economy information is derived to to make sensible inferences about it and understand that it might not be necessarily representative
0: of the activity that's actually going on it's funny i felt immediately guilty then because my husband and I run our business together and we're registered as a limited company have been for over a decade And a lot of our work was in London, but we've always done business outside of London. But we now live in Cornwall. A lot of our clients are still in London. But obviously, if you think about spend for the people who are employed by the business, myself, my husband and our members of staff who are all over the UK, I imagine that there's thousands of businesses like ours that even if they didn't intend to end up looking like that, after the pandemic, you know, people moving around, that's also having a huge impact on where the money goes in and comes out. Absolutely. And this is going to be a really fascinating development
1: because all GBA statistics, all statistics about economic activity, um, so we have them as GV and GDP, they're all done on a workplace basis. So where is the work taking place in this new world? And even before, to be honest, with multinational enterprises and, you know, big companies moving their headquarters around, you know, it's difficult to know, now, where does the work take place? Where does the activity take place? It's not as simple as it used to be when so much more of our economy was, was making stuff in factories. So it is really difficult now and it's only get, going to get more difficult, I think, in terms of, you know, this more um, dispersed model of working, which may persist more. Um, and it's likely to persist more than it has in the past after we get back to more normal times. So, yeah, it's a real it's a real headache for <laughs> national accountants just like multinational enterprises have been for a long time, about where it's actually taking place and which country it should be assigned to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too much down on a tangent, but all of this stuff it brings it brings me back to conversations I've been having locally, actually, in Cornwall. And I imagine that there's some very picturesque areas of Scotland and England and Wales that are having the same conversations about, you know, house prices going up in particular tourist areas around the UK now because the staycationness. And myself having spent 15 years in London, coming back with people who worked in London couldn't afford to live there for decades. So if there's a little bit of balance happening, you know, maybe that'll. Be Bring prices down. Obviously, not being an economist myself, I have these opinions which are based on nothing <laughs> and no actual knowledge. But it, but it, to me, it is it, just having to think about it. Is it's so interesting how the economy as a whole is not just impacted by COVID necessarily, but just the COVID has accelerated a way of working and a way of running businesses that was already happening but has been hugely accelerated because of people working from home. And I imagine that there's a lot of people who maybe were part of the Scottish economy, went to university in Scotland, and like myself, moved out for jobs in different sectors that maybe weren't active in Scotland. I wonder how many of us, because obviously we we only moved to Cornwall, but Scotland was on the question mark list of where to go to. And I imagine there's a lot of people who lived in the South East who got there from different areas of the UK that maybe didn't have the jobs they were looking for, because they were centred in the southeast, and how will that impact the national accounting in Scotland over the next decade as people maybe start to move back because there's that flexibility? It's a really interesting question. I mean, all of this obviously, you
1: know, has huge implications for you know public transport provision, future town city centres, all of the associated activity with that. You know, we think a lot about. Economic multipliers in, in the work that we do, you know, in terms of supply chains and then just spend, they're all really important for our local economy. So these are these are big questions. And then that touches on things like business rates and the tax rates from city centres and so on as well. But in terms of the demography, yeah, I mean, there, there are huge demography challenges for parts of of rural Scotland for example and the outlook and if if one of the implications of of more home working for those who can, let's remember it tends to be those at the more affluent end of the scale who can and have been and have been saving money which has just um, exacerbated some inequalities we have. That would be potentially a good thing for those areas. But but one of the problems that is in rural areas is is housing shortages anyway because of the, the level of second home ownership and, and, and lack of building. So these things may, be, may simply be exacerbated. I mean, Scotland has a massive demographic challenge and it's very different to the UK as a whole. I mean, we need to remember that. Well, maybe we're talking about London in the southeast versus the rest of the UK, really. And with potential migration flows being you know, dampened by um, the the UK's exit from the EU, for example. You know, there are a lot of challenges in the outlook for the Scottish working age population, unless you happen to be around Edinburgh in the the east of the country and it looks looks much healthier, but there are are huge challenges. And these are the sorts of things that are really important when you're considering the outlook for the economy. You know, it can't just be about the economic data and and the productivity or, or whatever, which hasn't been looking great in recent years, it must be said. It's also about the capacity of the economy to grow. And if, you know, you have record low unemployment, which we, we almost do still, but um, we are expecting that to go up a bit later this year, we're still really low in unemployment where our population's got a lot of limitations on its growth, it would look like, you know, where is the capacity of our economy to grow successfully? You know, if we have those kind of capacity constraints on the number of workers that we have to be able to do
0: jobs. Yeah. And and it's funny because I speak to people about, you know, outside of London, because I've lived in London for for the last few years, but hugely aware of the communities that are just like mine back in the northeast of Scotland that exist all over the country. And equally, and this is something I spoke to someone else about um, to do with the levelling up agenda, is that the problem with London as as a little microcosm is that you've got some of the most deprived areas right next to some of the most affluent. And I come from an area of Scotland where Aberdeen was kind of like a little island of its own you know in the oil boom and, and times like that and, and like i said edinburgh has also had times like that where it's been a little bit of a microcosm and just to link this back into kind of discover economics and what, what we're trying to do if that has never occurred to you for example so if you're someone like yourself who's gone into you know be part of looking at the national accounts and making decisions and influencing policy about what's going to help real people. That's something that came up when I was sp- speaking to Andy Haldane when he was still at the the Bank of England about if you don't know what those smaller rural communities look like or if you don't realise that those numbers that cover a whole country change hugely if you go five miles down the road, that's a big problem if you're the ones at the centre making policy decisions what's been your experience of that aspect of kind of policy making
1: yeah i mean it's it's so important not to focus on the aggregate and it's never been more important actually than than over the last year and perhaps over the next year when we consider what the impacts have been on different sorts of people you know you look at the overall prospects for growth which are probably much better now than we maybe thought six or twelve months ago obviously with the vaccine rollout going so successfully um, you look at the the outlook for unemployment you know, at one point when we were talking about it hitting almost 10%, it's not going to go that high probably, it's not going to be that bad. But that's in the aggregate. Lots of people have saved up lots of money, but those are all wealthier people. The people who are going to lose their jobs are young people or more precarious contracts who have less money. And those who are going to suffer are in particular sectors who, who happen to employ more women, more young people and more people in rural areas. So that's the thing, although it maybe won't be as bad in the aggregate as we thought, the unequal nature of this crisis in particular means that it's going to impact on on people who were probably more vulnerable to begin with, and when we're talking about young people in particular, what terrible time they've had, whether it's disrupted education, disrupted higher education, you know, being the first to lose their jobs um, if they have more precarious contracts, not being able to get jobs, you know, and and the scarring effects that that can have on an economy for years to come, not to mention the kind of personal
0: and social costs are really serious. And also, they're massively intertwined, like that that mental health impact which is obviously huge and i know from my own mental health struggles as a teenager and you know up till the present day that has an impact on whether you can do a job any job this is the thing when you know when people talk about mental health as being slightly separate from everything else it's all it's kind of the all these things are terrible about covid and also it's had a horrible impact on everyone's mental health it's like yeah but those things are very closely aligned um which is a big big challenge um it's funny because i growing up, I didn't have a a kind of network of people for jobs and things like that. I'm from a a working class background and that lack of network would have had an impact on myself and the the other people that I went to school with who came out of school at the same time and and we went to university with. And and there were things that we plugged the gaps with. And and over the years, I've made a, a A massive effort when guest lecturing or or going in and working with young people to say, look, use your network. You might not have one right now, but now you've got a teacher who can introduce you to five other people if you need to. And one of my concerns, I think, uh, again, you talk about exacerbating things, is that even people with established networks, those were closed down when lockdown happens. And you have to make a real extra effort to stay in contact in different ways. And that's one of the things I worry about young people. They haven't even been able to kickstart that network. And something that's come up in the other interviews that we've done is how important when you come into a field where maybe you're not represented as much and, and you are maybe the first or certainly the third or fourth person in the room who looks like you, who has your type of background, there's one big thing that's going to make the difference is you having the confidence to walk into that room or having the connections to get into that room in the first place. So I wanted to ask you about your work with young people and the kind of economic futures program. What are the different aspects of helping young people into, um, you know, analytical roles? What are the elements that you feel are most important to helping
1: people get there? A lot of it's about signaling that that these careers exist um, and are important in the first place, I suppose. Um, and that there are so many different routes to to getting there. If you're interested in in using evidence and analysis to bring insights to real problems, then there are so many routes through which you can go in order to do that. But to sort of remember that it's all the same thing, really. It's about questioning, like you said, questioning that figure you've heard. Where does that come from? Who has said it? Do they have an agenda? Is it a reliable source? And it's never been more important Um, than it is now for young people to question information or data that they hear and you know you can be part if you wish to be you can be part of of you know the people who who know if data has a good provenance who who understand you know what reliable sources are and can help other people figure it out and, and make their way through this this mess and at the institute that's what we're all about I think you know we're trying to make sure that You know, people don't use data in inappropriate ways, that data is questioned appropriately, that is accessible, that is transparent, all of these different things in order to, you know, to best inform the debate. You know, I guess it's kind of from my background as a government statistician, where it's all about being transparent about your methods, being um, both actually free from political interference, but also having to demonstrate that you are um, on a constant basis to people like the UK Stats Authority who assess you and accredit your statistics. You know, I haven't been involved in one of the most controversial publications that Scottish government produced. So that's the Government expenditure and Revenue Scotland, which um, is is bandied about a lot in the independence debate. You know, it's so important to be able to demonstrate that the statistics have been produced in an independent manner. So I guess it's about signalling that these careers exist, that they're important and that you can be part of the... The solution, I suppose, when it comes to this this post-truth <laughs> world. And then it's yeah. <laughs> then it's about the route and you know the support. So e- Economic Futures, we've done things like bring students together who are not studying economics because no one studies economics and, and comprehensive <laughs> skills but those who are studying maths, who are studying business studies, who are doing other modern
0: studies, you know, the, the sorts of subjects my favourite subject at school. <laughs> oh, I loved
1: modern studies oh, as well.
0: Yes. This is a conversation I've had with my English colleagues colleagues in various workplaces. Is there an equivalent? in the English curriculum to modern studies? Because I always have to explain what it is. They look at me like I've got three heads.
1: No, I do as well. And it's been one of the things I've I've found interesting about UK-wide initiatives like Discover Economics is they don't always understand that there is this subject in Scotland, which is quite different. I suppose it's a mixture of politics, sociology, modern history. International
0: relations. International
1: relations, definitely. So it's it's all of those things mixed in together, but it does seem quite unique. But I think that that sort of subject is, is absolutely right for people who might be interested in you know, using evidence to try and solve the problems we have as a society. So about, so about getting those students together to say, you know, you, you could be one of these people who do one of these routes and there's lots of routes you can take, but you can end up here, you know, in the sort of, um, you know, the sort of job I have or, or my colleagues have, sort of, sort of trying to make sure that data is used properly. And again, the networks point is really important because one of the things we've done also is offer work placements to undergraduates with key organisations but they are they are not student-led. They are an employer that we know in our network says, I have this problem and I want somebody to work on it. We then advertise those openly across all students who attend Scottish universities um, and everybody can apply. It's also paid well, properly, at a research assistant rate. Thank you. Because, you know, otherwise, I think internships can be quite, they can exclude people who actually need to earn a proper
0: living. They absolutely do. I know you're trying to be tactful right now, Mary, but they do. Yes. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> They drive me insane. As someone who employs interns, paid interns, and has done the whole time I've run a business, it's so important that you acknowledge that you are closing a million doors if you do not pay people appropriately for an internship. And honestly, I feel like we should lobby for them being called something different because we have inherited that name. Obviously, they've been internship massively popular in the US for decades and decades and decades. And this idea that they're always free. It's just, if we are really serious about diversity in any sector... You have to pay people.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And, and that's why we, we, we keep saying they're not internships, they're work placements, because you're coming to do a job, you're expected to to work for this organisation, and you're working, you know, they're, they're for the Scottish Government, they're for Audit Scotland, they're for the Scottish Parliament, they're for, you know, people who actually have a problem that they want you to work on. And the calibre of these students has been been excellent, and the backgrounds are varied, and, and that's the kind of point. And every single student has said, I have never seen anything like this. You know, where you don't you don't rely on the student having to lead it to have the network within the university to come up with a project and all of this sort of stuff. It's like this is a real problem. Do you want to come and work on it? And hopefully inspire the students to think about the different sorts of things they can work on um, as an applied economist or an applied analyst. You know, and if we just inspire a few more people into these sorts of roles in the future, then I think that that's really good. Um, So this is our our second big year of running it and we've just appointed. What a time to start. My goodness. (laughs) I know, I know. We started in 2019 and unfortunately... Last March we had to cancel last year's one, but we figured it out now. We know how to we, we know how to work remotely now, so we figured it out. So so we're running that again this year. And I just think that's amazing. Hopefully, inspiring some of these students to stay in applied analysis, and even if it's in research in academia, but it's on applied issues, and 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 with a, always with an eye to what impact will this actually have, you know, which I think is is quite important from my point of view.
0: Absolutely, and I bet hugely. Again, I'm talking from my own experience here, but the young people I've worked with, you know, that's an important thing to them. what they work on has impact especially at that age when you're at university and you know you're not old and jaded like me or you know you want to feel like like what you're doing really does make a difference i I mean it's hugely important and it's wonderful to hear that this has been rolled out in scotland and i would love to hear about you know similar programs across england and wales and northern ireland etc like because because it is like all of the elements of the program that you've just mentioned, vital for the students, but also huge for the employers. Like a great opportunity for the employers as well, and it would be it would be great to make sure that that's happening across the board. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, some of it is about just making
1: linkages. So, 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 so I guess through that through economic futures, you know, we can help build the networks, whether it's for the employers or for the the prospective employees. I mean, this is linked to my time at the Fiscal Commission, which was a, was a brilliant. Thing to be a part of because setting up a new organization is really exciting but you know there are huge opportunities for applied analysts in in scotland now because the you know the the numbers that the, all these different organizations need with increased evolution of powers and so on you know you'll never be out of a job if you're an applied economist in scotland put it that way do you hear that everyone yes. <laughs> <guaranteed a
0: job. laughs> you can quote us on that There's absolutely
1: massive, massive demand for people with analytical skills, whether you're called an economist, a statistician, a data scientist, whatever it is, if you have analytical skills and you're interested in coding, you know, and you're interested in applying theory to practical problems to see if you can find solutions, you will you will not be out of a a job probably across the UK, to be honest. they're always always in demand. So but yes, it's it's been a real boom in Scotland and lots of different organisations that have had to be set up because of the increase in um, powers and you know Wales is going the same way um, as in Northern Ireland may well do in, in the future and and with increased devolution of powers to local areas um, there's increased interest in measurement at local areas and understanding economies at local areas which which
0: all, all of which need, need good analytical skills. Absolutely I mean I, I know that there's a lot of teachers and parents who be listening to this going great I know <laughs> I want to push my students or my children towards stuff that you know, you are guaranteed a career, etc. But not just that, it's, it's a career where, like you said, it's about the impact that you can have. And I think that's, it's a nice feeling <laughs> to have, you know, just that kind of knowing that what you're doing, no matter how stressful it might be at the time, is having a, an impact on the people around you that you care about. And I think that's important. And it's interesting you said about, you know, that need for data science and and analysis and, and economic kind of lens to look through things. It's, One of the episodes is Will Page, who's economist for Spotify, fellow Scottish person. We tried not to Scottish each other up during that interview too, so that everyone not speak too quickly. But that's something that he was saying about making your own job description, like not waiting around. And it sounds like that's happening at the moment as these new kind of needs are arising for data science as a skill. And it's, popping up in in kind of slightly different guises where we maybe hadn't expected it before. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think so. And you can see that the, the trend for students coming through with the skills that they can build upon um, in careers to move into more data science areas. Although, you know, sometimes I think some of these things are just fancy names for statistics. <laughs> Still, aren't they though? But, <laughs> you know, okay, it's just maybe more data, bigger data, you know, more different techniques of
0: modelling, but it's kind okay. Of it's like people it. coming up with their own <laughs> job titles. I love unpicking people's job titles. I'm like is that just a pretentious way of saying xyz (laughs) yes yes it is usually (laughs) we've got to cut through the noise so I just want to take a step back then so for you in your career this is so we're talking about it discover economics we're all about getting um, you know access from a wider range of people into um, the field and as someone you know I my first jobs in, you know, were in Aberdeen, all oil industry, um, or you know, my summer jobs, at construction and, and stuff like that. Not that I was constructing anything. Can I just say, anyone who can see my arms right now knows that that would be a disaster. Um, but you know, secretary of the admin support, so very male environments. And even when I went to work at the Guardian in London and worked in media, my department was all men plus me. I've had that kind of experience and I know from speaking to other say women in your role. Maybe not so much in the public sector, but I'd like to hear from you like what's been your experience of kind of gender balance or diversity in the in the roles you've had so far.
1: Yeah, I mean it was it was fairly good in the public sector. I mean, obviously I was in the statistics profession and it was very good. (laughs) I suppose nothing says it better than being promoted to a role
0: when you're seven months pregnant. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Do you know how happy I am to hear that? Like, oh, it delights me so much because it's another one of my soapboxes. I'm like, stop pushing women out of the economy just because they have children. Like that is... Brilliant. But but it was also the you know the case that whilst
1: you know it was a very supportive environment to have have kids, it wasn't always very typical to come back full time and things like that. You know, you get the odd, oh, you know, oh you
0: <laughs> the judgy look. <laughs>
1: yeah, totally. Um, you know, which is fine. But that was just the best thing for our situation. So that's what I did. So even though it was a supportive environment, the, the academia, although I, I say I'm not like a traditional um, academic, obviously, because I'm, I'm running the institute, which is more focused on applied work, um, impact for work, um, outreach and all the other things I'm doing rather than being a, a, a traditional academic. But it's certainly the case that, you know, it is quite male dominated, particularly in the senior Part, so of, of the university and the profession, and, and that's quite a change. Um, and you do notice that there are, there are fewer women in, in the sort of senior parts of the profession, which is quite interesting. And, you know, so there you have been, not within the university, I would say, but there have been some, some, you know, kind of one of those moments where, you know, male colleagues assume to be more senior or, you know, these sorts of things still happen now and again. And as someone who's, you know, relatively young women sometimes, um, you can get talked to in a certain way that a man wouldn't get talked to. And, you know, maybe you have to shout a bit louder. You have to remind people of your experience and skills, you know, even if you are a young woman. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
0: you should still listen to me, even though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that comes back to the confidence thing, though, doesn't it? As well like you know if you're opening doors and, and that's a pressure that's an added pressure as well it is
1: and, and coming into a more academic environment obviously people with my skill set are more unusual or my background are more unusual so it's also about demonstrating to colleagues and to the wider university you know why your complementary skill set or slightly different skill set is is useful for them and the, you know the research they want to do the impact they want to have uh, maybe, you know, even the income they want to generate, you know, and, and the sorts of um, advantages that you can bring, given that you have a wide network or you you know, have a media presence or, or whatever it is. So, yeah. So, so yes, that's certainly, certainly challenges um, I've faced. Um, I think I've had a fairly supportive <laughs> experience all in all. That's excellent to hear. But I did, I did you know, the, the statistical profession does tend to be a bit more balanced than the economics one overall.
0: Noted. And like what's interesting about that is that as, as we've gone through this conversation being like, it's just another word for statistics. It's just another word for th- It doesn't have to be. Like it, we could all have a balance across the board. One of the things I love that you said there is about, it essentially comes down to knowing your value. And one of the things that I really hope that young people get When it comes to economics, and and I always say this, like, even though this podcast series is about opening up access in the field of economics, I think it's true of many, many professions, is that young people from different diverse backgrounds should know how valuable that is to the sector they're going into. And I think that's really hard because when you're a young person, you know, you're told about, you're always told how you don't have any experience and blah, 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 blah like you have value in so many other ways that you are bringing, not just to the job that you are going into that's right in front of you, the one you're doing right now or straight out of university, but, the value you bring to an industry when you bring diversity into it is huge. And I think that that is, given the field of economics or statistics as well, and, and the influence that has on policy, then I don't think we're being hyperbolic when we say that, you know, if you come into economics and you're from a, a non-traditional background, like you're not a white middle-class male, let's say, by the time you get into economics, you're bringing something that's hugely valuable to the country. Potentially,
1: yeah. I would, I would say so. I mean, you look at all the pieces of research that are done now um, when we're trying to make policy in Scotland, and it's all about understanding lived experience. It's all about understanding people from different backgrounds. We're doing a bit of research just now on adults with learning disabilities in scotland and you know the experience that they have in terms of you know housing and employment and employability and and you know it's all about talking to people with learning disabilities and allowing them to to say well what the issues are and then you know what are are the solutions as well and that's just one example of how diversity and policy making can will make better policy and will actually help us do it, do a better job than maybe we have in the past. Diversity in economics is really important to ensure there's a diversity of thought whenever policy is being designed um, and we're thinking about the evidence that we need to collect in order to monitor and evaluate it, which is another thing we don't necessarily do very well in, in the UK or Scotland to understand what really works. We need a real diversity of thought so that we... We can we can do things which suit not just a certain section of society.
0: Hundred percent, and I've loved watching um, what's been happening in Scotland in terms of, you know, obviously you mentioned earlier the UK's you know separation from the EU, and. What that means for the economy in terms of people available to do jobs, <laughs> like so, you know, that's that's just as simple as that. And what I love watching in Scotland, in particular, and obviously it happens across the UK, not just in Scotland, but you know, the the way that different parts of the communities in Scotland have welcomed refugees from different countries, and how that's been very much about. Showcasing, and I hate to frame if you're a refugee like you you deserve protection, whether you're contributing to the economy or not. But what's been delightful is the framing of how much we gain from bringing people in from different countries for whatever reason, whether it's migration or whether it is through refugee status, etc. And it's been fascinating to watch how Scotland, in particular, certainly the rhetoric around the economy and the populations coming into Scotland. I wonder as well, because obviously COVID has had impact on that too, and it will be interesting to see what do the policies around that look like in 18 months' time, in two years' time, in three years' time? Because like you said, there are certain issues that have been exacerbated by COVID and looking beyond the data as to what it means for even tiny communities across Scotland will be fascinating. Absolutely and obviously
1: the policy levers are in quite a political space given where they sit um, around this, and the lack of um, an ability would seem to have a, a differential approach in, in different parts of the UK but you know there are massively different needs in different parts of the UK you know in terms of the outlook but it, it will be it will be interesting to see how that evolves but is likely to be caught up in I would think, wider constitutional wrangles, which will no doubt be going on over the next couple of years, I would have thought.
0: Don't tell me that. That means whenever I go back to London, taxi drivers will ask me about independence. (laughs) Even though I haven't lived in Scotland for
1: quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid it's quite likely.
0: Well, a couple of questions just to finish up. Sorry, I know we're we're almost out of time, but it's been so fascinating talking to you because, like I said, you've been right at the centre of so many important kind of changes and developments in the Scottish economy over the past few years, and it's really interesting. It's interesting to see how those have come about, how you've got into the position that you're in and what it means to you to be part of that ecosystem, if you like. And what I love about your particular story is that I think it does showcase for any young people listening, the real direct impact working in this space can have on not just the people around you, but like the whole country, like it can have such a big impact. So this might be quite a difficult question. However, (laughs) what would you say career wise that you are most proud of? so far? The colleagues I work
1: with, I mean, I've only just taken over as the acting director um, since my colleague Graham Roy left recently. So I have no doubt when you ask me this question in a couple of years, it'll be about the, you know, the team that you know, I've continued to build at the Fraser and the things we've achieved. But so far, um, I guess it has to be setting up the Scottish Fiscal Commission. It was a massive undertaking. There was only a few of us doing it and we had to you know, set up a whole new public body in a very short space of time, design the operating model, recruit the staff, make sure we had access to the data we needed. To see it, after I left in, in 2018, going from strength to strength, and, you know, standing on its own two feet after I um, decided to move on was, and see it's firmly established as a credible independent forecaster, which is just what Scotland needed. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of, of what I did there. And, you know, I guess setting in with the bricks, the principles of transparency, you know, of um, publishing everything we could, of being there for the public good, to be able to build that into the culture from the start. So which, you know, which still persists in the organisation to this day and the way that they approach publishing things is, is I'm really proud of that. And I work with some amazing people there, including Dame Susan Rice, who's just an amazing lady who's the chair of the commission. Um, and I learned so much from her. But yeah, I mean, to date, that's
0: definitely my proudest achievement. I mean, that's no small thing, is it? <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's, that is amazing. And, and you mentioned transparency in a couple of things so far. And, and again, I think that's something that young people... Like you said, are are really in a good position to kind of. I bet. I don't know about you, but I've certainly, in amongst relatives that are older than me, trying to explain that not everything on social media is true. And I find that, (laughs) and I bet there's a few young people, certainly a lot younger than me, who find themselves in that position. And I think that while it's obviously very important when it comes to data sets and the economy, it's important as a whole, I can't believe that I've gotten right to the end of this and I haven't grilled you on programme to use national and local economic data and statistics, but it just means I have to take you back if you will allow me to grill you on some more stuff but just as a final thought for any teachers and parents listening or young people indeed like what advice would you give to them if they maybe have a question mark over their head whether it's thinking do you know what at this point in my schooling I don't know if I've done the right subjects to get into this area I'm not sure if it's for me kind of what what would be your advice for parents and young people you know there are so
1: many different routes in to you know having an impact on the evidence and analysis that's to design policy, and you can come at it from a study in sociology, psychology, maths, economics, even physics. You know, water studies. You know, you, you can see all of these these subjects can lead you into this role. And then you know, if you think about my colleagues that um, I used to work with at the Scottish Government who were in statistics, they come through all different degree routes that had a sort of analytical or mathematical component in order to to end up there. So you can you can have if you're interested in You know, using analysis to help solve the problems in in society. There's lots of different routes you can take to do it, but just remember that your analytical skills. If you're interested in in coding or designing models in you know languages like, um, like R or Python or anything like that. You know, your skills will be are so valuable and you'll be able to, to sell yourself in any of these fields because it's about having that analytical way of thinking, that approach. Uh, I guess that's sort of methodological approach and um, methodical approach to things that's a, applicable in any policy setting um, and, and will be will be really valued. Um, and always, yeah, always question those figures you see, always question where is that data come from? Who is saying it? What's their what's their motive in saying it? Because there's so many, so many times I've done that in an area where something was true and you pick away at it and you, you discover circular references to lots of different documents. And, you know, we, you know, you can't actually find the, the, the source
0: for, for information. So always question it. And always ask where it's come from. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Maria. I really appreciate your time. And I'm hoping we can get you back on because there's so many other things that we can grill you on. um, That'll be amazing. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. And that's that for that episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to get in touch with any questions, please visit our website, discovereconomics.co.uk, where you'll also find loads of useful resources. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. Also remember to subscribe through whichever podcast app you're using so that you always get any new episodes as soon as they're published. See you on the next episode.